Anybody glad to be in God's house this morning? I was reading in the book of Ezekiel yesterday on the plane on the way here. And there's a passage in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, verse 32, that says, You have set your mind that you will go after false gods, and you'll be like the heathen. He said, But I, in my fury, will have you. We serve a relentless God. God says, He's going to do whatever it takes to have you. He'll do whatever He takes to have you. Isn't that good? That He loves you that much that even while you were a sinner, Come on. that Jesus died for you because God's willing to do whatever it takes to have you. That's an awesome thought. Amen? Well, you can make your way back to your seat if you're able to this morning. God bless you guys. Thank you, worship team. Y'all did good. Give the worship team a great big hand. Is it possible I could get a music stand or a little something just to come right here or we can move a pulpit down there? I don't care. Whichever one's easiest for you guys to do. Well, good morning. Well, that was weak. Yeah. Say good morning, everybody. Praise the Lord. I know these lights will come up here in a minute and I'll be able to see your faces. Praise God. All I can see is your head. Amen. Everybody smile real big. I need a California smile. There's no place like California. I don't need that. Well, I'm going to try that again. I said there's no place like California. I love California. Amen. Praise God. Well, I look forward to spending some time with you the next couple of days. Uh, thank you, Chancellor and the leadership team here at the School of Urban Missions for giving me the opportunity to come back. I told Chancellor and I've told others I have to be careful when I come here. Because every time I come here, I want to stay here. And this, and I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I, I travel all over the world, and I never go anywhere that I want to stay outside of California. Well, not even California. What's weird is it's like Oakland. I mean, I'm thinking like Carmel, California would be the right place to, for God to call me, you know. But uh, Oakland, you know, why God wants me to come here. So anyway... I love you guys tremendously. You have a huge part of my heart. Uh, every time I come here, when I leave, I uh, have to scrap the tears from my eyes. I get on a plane and I fly back and the people beside me think I'm schizophrenic or lost my mind or something. They ask me, did somebody die in your family? I said, yes. Yes, I just buried them back there. Amen. So anyway, take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to the book of uh, John, the Gospel of St. John chapter 3, the Gospel of St. John, uh, I had something completely different in my heart. And if the Lord will let me, tomorrow I'm going to go into uh, prophetic passages. Tomorrow I'm going to deal with Israel and Iran and tell you what's about to happen in the earth. You know, the Bible says that the sons of Issachar were discerners of the time and season, knew what the people of God ought to do. And the children of God ought to be discerners of the seasons that they live in. Because if God's getting ready to do something big in Israel, that means God's getting ready also to do something big in the church. In Abraham's loins, there were two seeds. God spoke to Abraham. He said, I'll make your seed as the sand of the sea and as the stars of the heavens. The sand of the sea is the natural seed. The stars of the heavens are the supernatural seed. 
So God spoke to Abraham and said, out of your loins will come two seeds. One will be a natural seed. We know that to be the Jewish people and the land of Israel, Jerusalem, all of that stuff, the Jewish people. That's the natural seed. But God said also there's going to be a seed that is as the stars of the heaven. That's a supernatural seed. Well, the supernatural seed, if you go over to the book of Galatians chapter 3, God, uh, Paul said, not all of those who are of a Jew or say they're a Jew are a Jew, but those who are of by faith are of the seed of Abraham. So if you're born again, you're also of the seed of Abraham. So the natural seed of Abraham is the Jews. Everybody say the Jews. The supernatural seed of Abraham is the church. So that means the church and Israel are prophetically connected together. So anytime God does something natural in the Jewish people, God usually corresponds with some kind of action in the supernatural realm in the church, which means if God is about to use Israel to defeat a natural enemy, then God is about to use the church to defeat a supernatural enemy. Are y'all here? I am talking to college students, right? I mean, you're not like nursery kids, right? I mean, I can talk deep to you. So hopefully uh, tomorrow, if the Lord will let me, so you need to talk to him about that. If the Lord will let me, we'll go into it. And I want to talk to you about the, the signs of the Lord's return and actually the signs of the last days and then show you what is uh, the characteristics of the last days and what God's going to do in the last days uh, according to his word. It's all in the Bible. That's what's the cool thing about it. It's all in the Bible. The Bible is the only book that tells you what the future is with accuracy. That's the only book, so it's quite wonderful. Uh, John chapter 3, though, is what's in my heart this morning. John chapter 3. And, uh, you know, uh, please forgive me today for not standing up and, and worshiping the whole time with you guys. Uh, <laughs> I, I dance so much in the presence of the Lord. Everywhere I go, I dance. I just like to dance. I just like radical dance. Y'all know me. I go crazy. So, uh, you know, I mean, just relax here in just a moment. I'll go to spitting and part your hair. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But anyway, uh, I broke my foot or strained my foot dancing, so I have to kind of be careful on it, you know, uh, or I'll be dancing on crutches, and that won't be good, right? So uh, you say, well, how do you break your foot dancing on uh, uh, for the Lord? Well, I don't know if you've seen the size of my rear end lately, but that's not good on one foot. So, you know, that foot is not made to hold that much weight. Amen. John chapter 3. Y'all smile. I'm trying to wake you up a little bit, all right? John chapter 3. Go with me to verse number 26. John chapter 3, actually verse 25. Let's start there. And I really have no idea the direction I'm getting ready to go this morning. I kind of just feel like I'm supposed to start here. Is that okay? And this is just how the Lord uses me. So if it's not any good, it's not my fault. It's His fault. If you're going to take notes, I want you to write this down. The litmus test of successful ministry is not people remembering you, but people remembering Him. The goal of my ministry while I'm here and the goal of my ministry everywhere I go and the goal of your ministry is that when you walk off the platform long after you're gone, people aren't talking about how great you were. They're talking about how great He is. The problem I have is that we live in a culture where all of ministry is designed almost to be a show. It's almost designed to be a production. And one of the things that grieves me is when I leave, people say, well, Pastor Shane was great. That's not what I want them to say. The litmus test of real quality ministry 
is that when I walk away from the microphone, you're not left talking about me. You're left talking about him. That's the litmus test of ministry. Now, with that concept in your mind, I want to show you what the Bible teaches, and I want to talk to you for a few minutes, and if the Lord will let me, I'm going to start giving you keys that will open heaven over your life that will make you the quality of minister that God has called you to be. There is greatness in you. I said there's greatness in you. The problem is, many of you will never aspire or even get close to that greatness. You say you should never speak that. No, I'm just telling you the truth. The wealthiest place in all of the Bay Area is the cemetery. In the cemetery lays all of the unfulfilled dreams and the undeveloped gifts and talents of people who had greatness in them but took it to the grave because they did not know how to release the treasure that was on the inside. And I do not want you to take greatness to the grave. I want you to be like the Apostle Paul. Paul said in two places, he said, I am poured out as a drink offering for you. Ministry is when you are emptying yourself out. And then Paul, in the last chapter of 2 Timothy, here's, this, this is the last words of the Apostle Paul right before he dies. He said, I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering. My life is ready to be poured out as a drink offering. In other words, Paul said, when I die, I want to die empty. The greatest indictment against you before the Lord is when you stand before Him for Him to look at you and say, I put all of this greatness in you, in you and you died full. I fear the day that I stand before Jesus. I fear that day. You realize the Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, got more revelation about the church, the last days, things of that nature, than any other apostle, two-thirds of the New Testament, turned the whole known world upside down, and yet Paul said he feared the day that he would stand before the great king. When I stand before Jesus, I don't want to stand holding anything that he gave me. I want to say, Lord, I deposited it all. I gave it all. Now here's something cool about God in the parable of the talents. God says if you multiply or you give your gifts, God multiplies more back to you. So the kingdom operates on this principle that as you empty yourself out, God fills you back up. And the more you empty yourself, the more you fill yourself up. It's just like this. You remember the, the, uh, the story with Elijah and the widow woman and the woman's in great debt. She can't pay her bills and the creditors are coming to get her sons. And she comes to the prophet and says, what do I do? And he says, go borrow some vessels and borrow not a few. And she gathers all of these empty vessels. And as long as she had empty vessels, God kept filling them. It's when that she reached the state of fullness that she was done. God can't anoint you as long as you're full. I'm, I'm already really good this morning. This is, I'm telling you, I don't even know where this is coming from. This is just in my spirit for you this morning. God can't anoint you while you're full. God only anoints vessels that are empty. He only pours in oil in empty vessels. So if you're going to die, die empty. 
I've got reverb or something going on effects. I, I heard me say die empty 45 times. Hallelujah. I'm going to say it again. If you're going to die, you need to die empty. Everybody shout die empty. die empty. Don't die full. I think this is what John meant in John chapter 3 when he says in verse 25, And there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and Jews about purification. Then they came, actually they were doing water baptismal service. And then they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who was with you beyond the Jordan whom you have testified? And behold, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I am have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is with the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard and that which he testifies, no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given Him all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in Him. John said, John said, I am my ministry. What I'm called to do is to be a friend of the bridegroom. Now the context of this passage is controversy. A controversy has come up to John. And basically, here's what's happening. Some of John's disciples comes to John and says, Pastor, we've got a problem. Do you remember that guy that you pointed your finger at and you said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Do you remember that guy? John says, Yeah, I know that guy very well. He's my cousin. He says, Well, I don't know if you realize this, John, but our attendance, our church attendance is dwindling day by day. I don't know if you know this, John, but ever since he walked out of that river that day, people began to follow him. Some of your leaders, some of your board members, some of your people have followed him and they're leaving you. And John, you need to know something. This dude has caused a church split. He has taken all of the tithes and offerings... The finances of our church has almost went to nothing. All of these people are leaving you and they're going to Him. Now, I don't know if you realize this, John, but you had the first mega ministry. You're the greatest of all the prophets, John. You had the first mega ministry in history. And now you're losing your ministry because everybody is following this long-haired, lean, Galilean dude who thinks he's all that in a bag of chips and walks down in a river, gets baptized by you, and you say he's the Son of God, the Lamb of God. Everybody's following him. John, you need to do something. In fact, let me tell you how bad it is. They're not just following him. They're following his disciples. They're going to hear even his teachers that teach under him, preach the gospel. Everybody's leaving and going. In fact, let me tell you what they're doing, John. You know, one of the hallmarks of your ministry, I mean like the logo of your ministry is like baptism. I mean, you are John the... Hello, okay. 
But now he is even taken like your trademark. I mean, you know, your gimmick that grows your ministry. Let the Lord speak to you. Your gimmick that grows your ministry. He's even taking your gimmick. And now his disciples are over there and they're baptizing people. And they got more people coming to their church than you got coming to your church. And John's response was this. No man can receive anything by himself. But only that which is given to him. And then John says, I'm the one that was to come before him to prepare the way. But he said, you need to know I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Son of God. Let me describe my ministry. And and John defines, I have no idea why the Holy Ghost wants me to go here this morning. John defines his ministry. He said, my ministry is to be a friend of the bridegroom. That's my ministry. He said, the woman who has the bridegroom, that's the bride. But I'm called to be the friend of the bridegroom. And he said the job, now listen to this, he said the job of those who are called to be the friend of the bridegroom, in other words, the best man at the wedding, the friend of the bridegroom, his job is to make sure that the bride hears the the bridegroom's words. And my greatest joy, listen, is not when I walk off the microphone or off the platform or off the television set that everybody says, wow, there was Pastor Shane. Wow, Pastor Shane is great. My job, my joy is that when I walk off the set that everybody says, boy, did you hear what Jesus said? Did you hear what the bridegroom had to say to the church? Did you hear what the bridegroom had to say to the bride? And John said, if you want to know what makes me excited about being in the ministry, what gets me excited is not the crowd. That's, co- that's counterculture to this generation. He says, what gets me excited is not the crowd. It's not the people that are coming. What gets me excited is when everybody walks away and I go by the kitchen table or I go by the restaurant table and I listen to people talk. They're not talking about how great the worship team was. They're not talking about how great LaFou was. They're not talking about how great the guitar was. They're not talking about how great the preacher was. They're sitting around the table and say, did you know what Jesus said to me? tonight do you know what jesus said to me today and what we need in this generation is not a bunch of people who are trying to build a circus for everybody to come to god is not calling you to have the biggest thing in town that might happen but what god's calling you to do is to be the friend of the bridegroom now let me tell you something you get in trouble in ministry When as the friend of the bridegroom, you're more concerned with what the bride thinks than you are with what the groom thinks. Did you hear what I just said? You get in trouble as a friend of the bridegroom in ministry. When you're called to ministry. When you try to please the bride more than you're interested in pleasing the groom. You're more more interested in making the bride feel good about herself than you are in doing what the groom has called you to do. The Bible says there's something there's something in the Bible called eunuchs. Eunuchs. Everybody know what a eunuch is? All right, let me, for those that don't, because some of you don't know what a eunuch is, a eunuch is a man who has been uh, demasculated 
so that he can be a friend to the queen. That's his job. His job is to protect the queen. His job is to comfort the queen. His job is to help the queen. But he has been emasculated so that he cannot inappropriately have relations with the queen. And let me tell you what most ministry is. Most ministry is nothing more than adultery with his bride. That's what the majority of ministry is. Most preachers are nothing more than fornicators with the bride of Christ. Do you know how I know this? Because they won't preach on sin. They won't talk about the cross. They won't talk about the blood. They won't talk about living right. All they'll do is give you self-help theology because all they're interested in is building nickels and noses in the seat. But in doing that, you are not giving to the bride what she needs to make her ready for the bridegroom when he comes. Are you all with me? Now let me tell you some things you don't know about John the Baptist. The historian Josephus, who is a secular historian, writes about John the Baptist quite a bit in his, in, his, uh, in his memoirs or in his writings, his historical writings. Josephus said about John the Baptist that 40,000 people a month were coming to John the Baptist to be baptized in the wilderness. He had no television. He had no radio. He had no website to drive everybody to. He wasn't sending out any kind of mass emails. He had no ham and organ. Are y'all with me? Is everybody here? Y'all okay? He had none of that, yet watch, 40,000 people a month are coming to John the Baptist to be baptized by him in the wilderness. 40,000 people. That's a mega church, ladies and gentlemen. That's a mega church. John the Baptist has the first mega church. So now Jesus has come and Jesus starts taking all the people and now 40,000 people are not coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. They're going to Jesus. How do I know this? In Mark, you have the record of 5,000 people save the men and um, save the women and children sitting on a lawn following Jesus everywhere we go. So you've got 25 to 35, 40,000 people following Jesus' ministry everywhere he's going. Those 40,000 left John the Baptist. Now, if I was a church consultant and I've, I'm flown into churches all over the country and they asked me this one thing, how do we grow our ministries? If I was a church consultant, there would be four things that I would tell John that he could do to take his ministry to the next level. Can I talk to you guys? As one preacher to another preacher, can I talk to you? There would be four things that I would tell John that you could do immediately to take your ministry to the next level. If John, if you have 40,000 people a month coming to you, I want to tell you, John, how you take your ministry to the next level. First thing you've got to do, John, is you've got to move out of the country and you've got to move to the population centers of the world. Get out of the wilderness, get out of the Judean wilderness, and go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a major capital city. It's the crossroads of trading center of this part of the world. Go to Jerusalem. If you're having 40,000 people a month out here in the wilderness, 
You'll have a million people a month if you just take the ratio if you move to Jerusalem. So you need to move your ministry capital to where there's major cities. That's the first thing I would tell them to do. You've got to do this. Get out of this little country town. Because these people out here, you, they're not going to pay your bills. They're not going to help you buy your jet. You're not going to be able to get that Mercedes and that big house that you want. You're not going to be able to do that here. You're going to have to go to the city where they got some money. Is this on? Okay. Just making sure. That'd be the first thing. The second thing I would tell John the Baptist is you need to get on some kind of health and nutrition program. I mean, John, look, dude, you're eating locust and wild honey. Right? You're fasting. You're fasting all the time. I mean, your eyes are kind of sunk back in your head. You're, you're wafy looking. You're a little emaciated. You know, you, you look like a bag of bones, John. And honestly, when children come up to you, they're a little scared. So here's what you need to do. You need to get on a vitamin and nutrition program. In fact, let me tell you what I can do. I can put you on one and we can set you on one. And you can start using your television program. And you can start selling these vitamins and don't get mad. Don't get mad. I believe in vitamins. I take vitamins. I'm just tired of preachers selling vitamins. I just wish preachers would preach the gospel. That's all. Anyway, so everybody take a breath. It'll be all right. So I got to get you on this health and nutrition program. We got to change the way you look. Oh, by the way, while we're talking about your looks, John, you know, you're wearing that coat of camel's hair. Man, I don't know if you know this, John, but that's like what the prophets, it's what the preachers wore back in the old days. John, you're too old school. Here's what you need to do, John. You need to get you some skinny jeans, some flip-flops. Come on, I got them on. Don't, I'm not making fun of them. I'm just saying, this is what I tell John. John, you've got to start dressing more relevant for your culture. Here's what I found. The church has a way of using relevance to cover up their spirit of religion. They have a way of using so-called relevance to cover up their spirit of religion. So in other words, listen, John, you know, if you're going to draw people, you've got to start looking like them. So you're going to have to do whatever it's got. You've got to appeal to the mass. So here's what you need to do. You need to get a more contemporary set of clothes. By the way, would you like to know what a coat of camel's hair is? A coat of camel's hair is, comes from the camel underneath the chin of the camel. It's where the softest hair of the camel is. Can anybody tell me what we call that little patch under there? Some of you women all know this. You wear it in sweaters all the time. Turtleneck. <laughs> Come on, somebody say cashmere. Watch this. So you, would you like to know what John the Baptist really wore? He wore a cashmere suit. By the way, that's what the wealthy wore in Jesus' day. A cashmere suit. So it really wasn't all that weird. You know, I've got people saying, well, I'll tell you what, if I can just get real weird, you know, I'm going to get out there on a limb and become real radical. And I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to cut myself and do all this. I'm gonna, and I'm going to do what i got to do to appeal to the masses. Because John the Baptist, he ate locusts and wild honey. All right, locust was the carob bean. It it's, tastes just like chocolate. Some of you ladies should say amen right now. tastes just like chocolate. And, and, and wild honey is real sweet. So basically John liked um, candy. 
and wearing Armani suits. Can I get a witness on anybody in here that wants some of that? But see, 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 here's what we do. We read the Bible and we read stuff into the Bible and we make stuff weird that's not weird. Jesus isn't weird. You don't have to be weird to get people's attention. So, oh, oh let me get back to my consulting of John the Baptist. You got you to gotta update your dress, right? And, okay, number four, John. Now, this one's a little serious and this is going to be a little tender to you, you know, because I know preachers don't like you to be critical of their preaching. But number four, John, if you're going to take your ministry to the next level, here's what you got to do. You're going to have to tone it down a little. I mean, you've got like politicians and kings and everybody coming to you. And I don't know if you know this, John, but like Herod, he could pay your building off. I mean, John, he could write a check right now and you'd never have to take up another offering again. So here's what you need to do. You need to take your message. You need to make it a little more palatable. Just tone it down because this generation, I mean, you're offending people. So let me, let me just tell you what I mean by that. Quit talking about adultery, fornication, divorce. Quit talking about all that. Don't just preach the good stuff. And these are the four things you can do to take your ministry to the next level. Now, I want to tell you what I just told you is what every major church consultant in America tells churches to do to take their name. That's the four things. I've never preached this. Have, have you ever heard me talk about this? I've never preached what I'm sharing with you right now. This is in my spirit. I'm so sick and tired of pretty, cute, sissy, coward church. And that's not what this generation needs. What this generation needs is some radical people who are radically in love with Jesus, who have the mindset that if I have to, I must decrease, that He might increase. But when I walk off the platform, they're not going to talk about how cute my jeans were. They're not going to talk about how cute my style was. When I walk off the platform, they're going to talk about the power and the encounter with Jesus that they had because Jesus just visited them face to face. Are you listening to it? So here's your choice. You can do those four things and take your ministry to the next level. Or you could be the voice of one crying in the wilderness and 40,000 people a month will run to you to be delivered. And when God chooses to do something in your generation, He'll choose to pass it by you first because you chose to be a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Are y'all listening to me this morning? Can you say amen to that? Here's what I've done. I've chosen to be the voice in the wilderness. Since I've been with you last time, God's opened tremendous doors, all kinds of television, all that stuff. Okay? And I thank God for it. But do you know what they're all saying? So I go on television and, and, I, and I go in there and I just say what God tells me to say and I walk out and they're crying. All of these executives of these television stations are crying. And they'll say, oh my God. And I have a meeting with them. You know what they say? They say, the reason we have you over here all the time is because when you come, you don't care what we think. You're not trying to make friends or influence people. Here you are, you come out of this little country town in West Monroe, Louisiana, where y'all wrestle alligators and eat crawfish. 
You come out of this little country town. We've never even heard of you. We haven't heard of your church. We don't know who you are. But the reason we keep having you is because when you come in here, you do just the opposite of what everybody else does. Everybody else comes in and tries to speak sweet things and tries to be... They know that, that, that one appearance on TBN can take their ministry to the next level. And you come in here and you're not saying little sweet things. You're looking into the camera and saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The baptizer of fire is here. So people ask me, okay, pastor, how are you getting all Oh, you're doing all this stuff. How are you doing all of it? Let me tell you how I'm doing it. I've just decided to be the voice of the bridegroom, a friend of the bridegroom. And I've made it my life's goal to make sure when I leave that they're not talking about Shane. They can't even remember my name. What was that bald dude's name? I mean... He was a good-looking thing, but I can't remember his. Y'all can help me here, okay? I can't, I can't remember his name. What, I, but let me tell you what he did do. Oh, I, rem, I remember what he taught on. That's my job. Do you want that kind of ministry? Do you want that kind of ministry? How many want you want God to take you to the four corners of the earth and just splatter you all over the globe and use you to make sure that the world knows the voice of the bride? Do you want that? God wants that for you. Let me give you a couple keys real fast. What time am I supposed to get out of here, Pastor? You go. No. Okay. All right. All right. We'll, we'll get done about six tonight. All right. Let me give you a few few minutes here, okay? Let me give you a few keys that will help you be the right kind of voice to your generation. Because I'm, I'm 42 years old now. I know, you can't believe it, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to believe it. I'm 42 years old. And if the Bible says I get 70 years, 80 by reason of strength. If the Lord lets me live 80, I'm already half through my life. I still believe my greatest days are ahead of me. But the truth of the matter is my time is quickly slipping. And what I've decided when I turned 40, that I would spend all of my time not trying to be great myself. The first 40 years, I tried to be great. I think everybody does this. What I've decided now is the next 40 years, I want to help somebody else be great. So I want to help you this morning. Let me give you four keys to make you the right kind of minister. Four keys. Number one, understand the value of spiritual authority. A man comes to Jesus, says, I need you to come. Heal my servant. He's sick. Jesus says, okay, where do you live? He said, you don't have to come to my house. All you got to do is speak the word. And Jesus said... I've never seen great faith like this. No, not in Israel. Because this man understands the power of authority. Listen to me. If you're going to write this something down, write this down. You can't have authority when you're not under authority. Here's what we have in this generation. We have a generation of people that just get up and went instead of being sent by spiritual authority. 
I have people all the time. Well, Pastor, God has called me to the ministry. And my response to them is, God might have called you, but you have not had hands laid on you by spiritual authority and set you forth into the ministry and sent you out. And until somebody over you in the Lord recognizes the call on your life and releases you into that call, you're a bastard if you try to go out and do it by yourself. By the way, let me just define bastard. Jesus used, or, or, or Paul used that word in, in Hebrews, by the way. I'm not, that's, that's a biblical word. A bastard is a person who does not, is not able to identify their father. And therefore, because they don't know their father, they don't have an inheritance. In the book of Numbers, God said when you're a priest, if you're going to be a priest, in the book of Numbers, the only way you can qualify to be a priest is if you can identify your father. That's in the book of Numbers. Everybody say the book of Numbers. That's in the book of Numbers. Everybody just focus right here, okay? I know people got things to do. Just focus here. You're, you're old enough just to focus. It's just babies. That means they're alive. They're moving. Thank God for it. All right, so watch. Listen to me. The book of Numbers says you are not qualified. You cannot serve as a priest unless you can identify your father. That's what it says. It's what the book of Numbers says. So listen to me. If you cannot look back and identify your spiritual father or your spiritual mother, somebody in spiritual authority over your life that says, hey, not only have you said God called me, but I recognize the call of God in you and I lay my hands on you and I set you forth in the ministry. God says if you cannot do that, then you're considered a bastard and you're disqualified from serving in the ministry. Are you all with me? Can I prove it to you? Matthew chapter 1 is a generation of all the genealogies. It's a list of all the genealogies of Jesus Christ. It's a list of all of His fathers. Why is Matthew chapter 1 a whole list of of the genealogy of Jesus' fathers? Because in the Jewish culture, and the book of Matthew was written to the Jewish culture, the Jewish culture, you were not qualified to be the high priest. And Matthew presents Jesus as the great high priest. You're not qualified to be the high priest unless you can identify your father. Fathers. So Matthew chapter 1, God starts, or, or Matthew starts out the whole discourse of the book of Matthew proving the, the priesthood of Christ by first identifying his fathers. And Jesus lived for 30 years before he ever did one single miracle. Do you realize He's the Son of God? Do you realize He's the Son of God, but yet He cannot do one miracle? It wasn't until God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased that He was then able to be released into the Messianic anointing that was in Him. So you can have an incredible anointing in you, but until somebody in spiritual authority recognizes it and says, this is my beloved son, or this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased, they can be trusted, and then they lay hands on you, that anointing will die and go to the grave. And if you just get up and say, well, I'm going to go because I'm called. Very rarely does that work. Usually that ends up in devastation. 
Usually that ends up in devastation. You know why? Because when you do that, you have, you have just stepped into a bastard type of anointing upon your life, which means you can't identify your father, which, watch this, means you can't access uh, inheritance. The greatest principle that I have ever learned in my life is having a pastor or a spiritual leader, a mentor in my life and involved. And I'm not talking about something. So listen to me. Don't come up and ask me to be your spiritual papa. You got one. I said you got one. I can't be your spiritual papa when I live on the other side of the United States. You need somebody who sees your life, who watches you. And this is the reason you're in school. Who knows where you're at. They recognize the call of God, but they also recognize that you're not ready yet. And what they do is they do what the Bible says. They circumcise you. All right, do I need to qualify circumcision? Or does everybody know what circumcision is? They circumcise you. Watch this. Most ministries operate like Moses. They're not willing to cut the foreskin of flesh off of people's hearts. So what happens is you can always tell which one of ministries those are because there's always women running that church. When Moses wouldn't circumcise his son, Zipporah, his wife, had to circumcise his son and brought the bloody foreskins and threw it at his feet. And said, you're a bloody man. Because this is never a woman's job to circumcise somebody's hearts. This is the job of the spiritual father to do this and you wouldn't do it. We don't need Moseses. We need some Abrahams that when God speaks to us that very same day, as soon as God spoke to Abraham and said, circumcise yourself, Abraham went and got a rock, sharpened it, and he cut off the foreskin of his life. And we need some spiritual fathers who aren't interested in babysitting a church, but who will cut the skin, the foreskin, skin of flesh away from people's life so that they will be qualified to reproduce. The reason you, you do circumcision is so that you can reproduce without disease or infection. But what we have in the body of Christ is we have people, preachers, who are spilling seed into the ground and they're reproducing something that has an infection from the very beginning. Are y'all with me? So we need spiritual fathers. This is the reason Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 15. Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. The word instructors there means babysitters. Everybody say babysitters. But he says, here's what Paul said. Paul said, here's the problem in the Corinthian church. Are you ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, you're incredibly gifted. He says about you, you come behind in no gift. You have a gift in you, you come behind in no gift. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, here's how great the gifts are. I have to help you get some order to it. You're such a gifted people that you're coming to church with a word. You're coming to church with a prophecy. You're coming to church with a gift of healing and a working of miracles. You're coming to church. You're a gifted people. But when you get over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, yes, you're gifted. But then he turns around and said, you're carnal. Watch. Carnal means fleshly, earthly minded. So what he's saying is your problem is you have an incredible gift, but there is flesh that is containing it. And in order for this thing to be pure, I got to get the flesh off. 
So watch, we have an incredibly gifted group of people that prophesy, lay hands on the sick, do all of that stuff. Are y'all okay this morning? We have an incredibly group of gifted people, but we also have people within the church. Here's how carnal they are. We have a young man who's sleeping with his father's wife. We also have women who are, and men who are committing fornication. You read that, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he's encouraging some people to get married so that they don't burn sexually. So you got sexual immorality. You've got confusion and division setting into the body of Christ. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. You have all of this going on. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they're coming to communion and they're committing the sin of gluttony and they're getting drunk at communion. Well, there's a reason to come to church. Hey. Woo. Oh, we had that good wine we had last week. So you have all of this stuff going on. And here's Paul's answer to it. Paul says, I've got a way to fix all of this carnality in the church. It's called the father-son order. I'm going to send my son Timothy to you. Because you have 10,000 instructors in Christ. But you don't have many fathers. Listen to me. An instructor means a babysitter. Paul said the problem in the body of Christ is we got babysitters behind the pulpit. This is the reason I'm talking to you because God wants you to be fathers and mothers. God wants you to raise up a generation that are not a bastard generation. See, first the natural, then the spiritual. We live in a fatherless society. That's the reason the Bible says in Malachi chapter 4 that the job of the Holy Spirit in the last days is to return the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. In other words, God's going to reestablish this prophetic order so that we'll come out from this under this bastard type of anointing where we can't access an inheritance. And actually, we'll come out from a father's anointing. I have a pastor. His name is Bobby Bowen. His phone number is 9314 I'm trying to look at the dial 4567987 calling today. I talk to him every week, two to three times a week. He's now 80 years old. Let me tell you about our relationship, can I? Cuz everybody says, "Well, I want to be able to flow in the anointing like Pastor Shane." Hey, you don't know what you're asking for. <laughs> Let me tell you about our relationship. My pastor, I go pick him up one time when I'm your age and I'm in Bible college and I'm doing ministry and I go pick him up and we're supposed to go to an Assembly of God district meeting and all of the big toupee where, I mean, the, the big big wigs are there and, uh, <laughs> oh Jesus, forgive me Lord. That's the reason I shaved my head. I, for, I just, just, I am not going there. All right. You know, I'm talking about them toupees, you walk in the wind, they come up like that right there. Wave or just wave like that. <laughs> so anyway, I go get my pastor and we get in the car. We're going to this big meeting, right? Executives are there. I get in the car. He gets in the car. We're driving down the road. He said, Shane, he said, uh, you know, we're going to this big meeting. There's going to be a, some high level officials there. I said, yes, sir. I understand. He said, all right, let me clarify something. He said, you're ignorant. You're stupid. You're dumb. That's exactly the words he said. You're ignorant, you're stupid, and you're dumb. And you don't know anything. So when we get here, you keep your mouth shut so that you won't embarrass yourself. And furthermore, and more importantly, you won't embarrass me. So I'm at the meeting and somebody asked me a question. And I gave the best scriptural answer I could give because I didn't want to embarrass us. 
my pastor stops everybody at the table and says, excuse me, gentlemen, I'm trying to raise him up. He's my son in the Lord. And I'm trying to teach him how to do ministry right. He said, excuse me. He looks at me and says, Shane, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard anybody say. Don't ever say something stupid like that around me again. Now, he did that all the time. All the time. But let me tell you what I learned. Listen to me. I'm going to teach you something. What I learned is that I was dumb, ignorant, and stupid when it came to ministry. I had the whole concept of ministry wrong. And what I had finally found was a man who loved me too much to leave me to myself. So I submitted. And now today, I never will forget, do you realize I preached for five years as a pastor and my pastor never one time said to me, you did a great job. Never one time. That was good tonight. Every time, criticize me, criticize me, criticize me. I'm talking about five pages of notes criticism. Finally, after five years, I was at Maury Davis's Cornerstone Church and I was doing a, a, a thing in Maury Davis's and I was talking about church growth pastor and I walked out that night and, we, and when we got outside, tears were running down his cheeks and he put his arm around me and he said, you're my beloved son and I'm well pleased. When he did that, the anointing, the cap of the anointing came off my life and I went to a new level. To this day, I ask for his help. And I'm telling you, I have actually had... I paid $25,000 for plans to build buildings. And my pastor say, don't do it. And I have rolled the plan up. Even though I felt and knew that God told me to do it, I have rolled the plan up because I believe in spiritual authority. I rolled the plan up, put it in the corner, and I said, okay, God, you said I can't have authority unless I'm a man under authority. And if you want me to build this building, I know you spoke to me. You better talk to my pastor. And a week or so go by and he come back and say, Shane, you know what? I think I missed God on that. You need to build that building. But I have authority. I said I have authority. So when people who are demon-possessed like this woman was two weeks ago that came into our office and sitting there and all of a sudden she's talking and I said, there's a devil in you and I rebuke that devil. She falls out on the floor and pukes blood in my floor and we get her delivered. Why do we do that? Because I got spiritual authority. And you can't have spiritual authority unless you're under authority. Now, I want to teach you something. Can I, let's go to 1 Samuel real fast. Are you all all right tonight, today? 1 Samuel. Oh, man, there's so much. You know, the only problem about coming here is there's so much I want to teach you. I just wish I could fly back and forth for a while. Superman. Hallelujah. 1 Samuel. And uh, I want you to go to uh, chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verse number 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over everybody. Everybody say he made his sons. The name of the firstborn was Joel. The name of the second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took tribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of the Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all of the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said it. Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Stop. Samuel is a prophet. 
Samuel has sons. His sons don't want to step into the prophetic mantle that is upon the father. So the option is politics. You, missed, you just missed what I just gave you. Samuel is a prophet. Everybody say he's a prophet. He has sons. Everybody say he has sons. And his sons are supposed to step into the prophetic mantle of the father. The will of God was that Samuel's sons would take up his prophetic mantle and that Samuel's sons would rule over Israel with the word of the Lord. But what happened is that Samuel's sons refused to, to carry out the desire of the father and in return, they exchanged the prophetic move of God for the political move of God. Why do we have all of these church splits and churches vote pastors in and vote pastors out and do all of this crazy stuff? It's because we've gotten out of spiritual order. We no longer are fathers and mothers raising up sons and daughters and putting them in our, in our churches saying, Hey, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He has my heart. He's going to do it like you, like I would do it. We no longer have that. What we have is a group of people in churches that don't have the heart of God at all that are voting pastors in. We've rejected the prophetic order and in turn we got the political order. And not one time in the New Testament do you see the New Testament church voting anybody in. Not one time. In fact, the only time they do it, God, God rebukes them for it. He calls it the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Go study it. Nikolai was a leader in the New Testament church and he decided he was going to develop a new order out from under the, the uh, apostolic order. And what they did was they raised up clergy and out of the doctrine of the Nicolaitanisms came ecumenicalism. And as a result, the church went into spiritual darkness. So, number one, how do I stay a friend of the bridegroom? Get a pastor. Get a pastor. Get a pastor. John said, I got to decrease that he might increase. You need a spiritual father or mother who can cut the foreskin of your life away. Get you out of the flesh and get you into the spirit. Everybody say amen. All right, everybody stand with me right now. Stand up real fast. Stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. All right, turn, twist, move, slap a neighbor, punch somebody in the face. Hallelujah. All right, you can be seated. Be seated. I just want you to stand up for a second. Number two, are you ready? Let me give you the second thing that's going to open heaven over your life. Are you ready? Can't hear you guys. Are you all ready? Understand the power of the Holy Spirit and the anointing. Understand the power of the Holy Spirit and the anointing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. Everybody get your Bibles out. You're going to need them for just a moment. Go to John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. You should know it by now. You ought to be able to quote it by heart. 1 John 2, 20. You have an unction from the Holy One. And you know all things. Everybody say, I have an unction. Come on, everybody say, I have an unction. An unction is the word anointing. You have an anointing. You and you 
and you and you have an anointing. And it's personal. It's individual. The Bible says you have an anointing from the Holy One. The Holy One is the Holy Ghost. You have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. Now, what kind of anointing is it? Is it a small anointing or is it a big anointing? God wants you to do something small or does God want you to do something big? Well, Ephesians 3.20 tells you how big the anointing is. It says, Now unto Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above... Everybody say exceedingly. Abundantly. Above. All that we could ever ask or think. Now watch. According to the power that works in you. So watch, 1 John 2.20 says you have an anointing. Everybody say, I got an anointing. You've got an anointing from the Holy One. Ephesians 3.20 tells you how big it is. He says if you can think it, if you can dream it, if you've laid in bed and imagined it, you need to know you need to multiply it times three because that you're not thinking big enough. Everybody say, I got an anointing from the Holy One. There's an anointing in you and it's not a small one. God wants to do what's in you abundantly above all you could ever ask or think in an exceeding manner. So God has a big anointing in you. Everybody say, I got an anointing. Everybody say, I got a big anointing. It takes just as much faith to believe big as it does to believe small. When I first was called to ministry... I would lay around in the bed at night and dream of stadiums being filled with people and me on the platform preaching to them. Anybody else ever had those kinds of dreams? Come on, if you've had those kind of dreams, could you wave at me, spit at me, smile at me, do something? You've had those kind of dreams. God said, if you have dreamed it, it's too small. So watch, in the early days, I would dream at night on a platform, can everybody stop moving for just a second? Just, it's really hard when we're moving around. God says, listen to me, if you dream it, it's too small. In the early days, listen to me, in the early days, I'd dream of a platform, hundreds of thousands of people out there, and I'd be preaching the gospel, and they were every color. I'd give an altar call, and they would run down to the altar. I'm going to tell you a dream. This happened every night of my life for a long time. And when they ran to the altar, I would see myself back up on the platform because I was almost afraid of the thousands of people running to the altar. And when I did that, immediately I was pulled out of that dream, and I was sitting in the living room of a house. And I was behind the, the couch, and there would be a mother, a father, a son, and a daughter sitting on the couch, and I'd look over their shoulder, and there I was on television. And I give the altar call and, and I said, if you're in your homes and you need to get saved, just come to the television set right now and put your hand on the television set. I would see all four of them get up off the couch crying and go to the television set and they would kneel down and touch the TV set and then I would wake up. I had this every night. And God said, if I could see that, if I can dream that, I need to multiply it by times three at least, exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ever ask or think. And watch this. He tells me how he's going to do it. He says, I'm going to do it by the anointing that's on the inside of you. So watch. I had this dream for years. I go to, I go to, I finally got the place. I go to Africa and I preach in the stadium be full, right? And I was just excited. I'm living my dream. 
I get back on the plane. Oh, living my dream. God, you're such a good God. And God said, no, 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 no. You've only just begun. So the last time I was on television with Daystar a few months ago, I was on the set and this lady comes up to me and says, can you sign this piece of paper? I said, sure. She said, this is a waiver for every nation on the globe. I said, okay. She said, you don't realize this, but on any given night, we have 1.2 billion people tune in to our television station. She said, in just a moment, when you stand up to preach behind that podium, there's going to be 1.2 billion people watching you from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. So I'm up preaching behind the podium and I remember my vision, my dream. And I get tore up like I am now. I said, I said, I dreamed about this. And I dreamed about you, mom and dad, boy and girl that is sitting on that couch watching me right now. And you don't know Jesus. And if you want to receive Jesus, get up off that couch and come to the television set. Put your hand on the television set. And I'm going to pray the sinner's prayer and God's going to save you and God's going to invade your home. And I pray the sinner's prayer and when I get through, here's what I say to them. Now, now that you pray that prayer, pick up the phone and call so that we can send you for free material to help you with your walk with God. Daystar had 16,000 phone calls every minute for the next hour and a half. 16,000 Times 60, 90, 120. God wants to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all you can ever ask or think. But watch this. It's not going to fall out of heaven. It's not just going to fall on you. He said, I'm going to do it by the anointing that's on the inside of you. He said, I'm going to use what's in you. Which now creates an incredible problem for all of us. The key now becomes, listen. Everybody say, I have an anointing. Come on, everybody say, I have an anointing. Everybody say, it's a big anointing. Now look to your neighbor and say, so how do I get it out? Remember I talked to you about dying empty? Remember I talked to you about dying empty? So how do I get what's in me? To come out of me. Colossians chapter 3 tells you. Go over there. Colossians chapter 3. You guys are Bible students. Hopefully you got your Bible this morning. Colossians chapter 3. Are you guys being challenged by anything yet? We've only just begun. I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit. I just, I might only give you two keys today, but it's gonna be two good keys. Colossians chapter 3. Are you there? If you then, We're raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind. Everybody say, set your mind. On things which are above, not on things of the earth. Remember me talking about somebody needing to cut off your foreskin, cut off the flesh? you got to get the flesh off so you can get your mind right. He says, set your mind on things above. Now notice this, verse 3. For you died. Everybody say, you died. Died. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Everybody say, I died. died. 
and my life is hid with Christ in God. Watch this. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a description of the anointing and the power that Jesus walked and lived in. The Bible says when you got born again, you died, the old you died, and your new life is hidden with an anointing, Christ. Your new life is hidden with an anointing. Everybody say, I got an anointing. Everybody say, it's a big anointing. Listen, God said when you died, when you got born again, your life was hidden with an anointing, with Christ, with an anointing in God. That sounds great. But how do I get this thing out? Verse 2 tells you, set your mind on things above. Now I'm going to give you the most profound thing the Lord's ever taught me. You ready? The anointing has regulators. Dams. Regulators, you know, that'll hold it back and release it. The anointing has regulators. On a personal level, the, your anointing is regulated by your mindset. So you can have this incredible anointing to do incredible things, but if your mindset's wrong, you'll never function in your unction above your mindset. This is why you're in school. Because school exposes you. There's only one way, God, I'm running out of time. There's only one way to change a mindset exposure. People in my church say all the time, well, Pastor, we got a great church. And I always say, great compared to what? Great compared to T.D. Jakes. Great compared to Joel Osteen's. I mean, who, who are we comparing ourselves to? Exposure is the key of changing a mindset. Watch this. Your mindset limits your anointing. Watch. Many of you were raised in this area. And so you have mindsets that you have grown up in. And if you don't get them off of you, I don't care how big the anointing is in you, it's not coming out. That's a word from God. So watch. On an individual level, on a personal level, your mindset regulates the anointing. The only way to change a mindset is exposure. On a corporate level, unity is a regulator of the anointing. On a private level, your mind is. Amen? We're out of time. We're out of time. Here's what you need. Listen to me. You need a mindset change. Oh, 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 I got it. Now I understand it. That's what the word means when it says in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your it makes sense to do this, right? Oh, yeah. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why do you have to change the way you think? So that you may prove. You can have an incredible anointing in you, but you'll never prove that anointing until your mind changes.